If you're listening to this in 2020, then you're listening to this in the midst of what is commonly now considered one of the most chaotic, confusing, divisive, disheartening, and downright disastrous years in modern history. And if you're listening to this after 2020, well, I'm hoping you're not right now laughing at my wishful thinking and lack of imagination, because I absolutely do believe we're going to make it through all this. This isn't the end of times, though it clearly has all the signs of humanity undergoing a profound transformation in how we ultimately decide to live together on this planet. Welcome to Men This Way, the podcast for every man who seeks to live his deepest purpose in life, who's committed to showing up fully and giving his unique gifts to the world. Because if not you, then who? I'm your host and fellow journeyman, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Men, this way. Are you struggling with the growing divisions in our current world? Are you afraid things might get worse before they get better? Did you know that a descent into darkness, a terrifying uncertainty, is essential for human transformation? Well, in this episode, I mine these questions and more for useful insights to make a meaningful difference in your life. In this episode, I'm going to share with you an interesting perspective on egocentric society versus ecocentric society and how our current egocentric model of living almost guarantees the kinds of divisions and even increasing violence we're seeing more and more of at the moment. And I'll share with you my own struggles around a conversation with a close friend who's been leaning in the direction of supporting Trump for another term of presidency. Now, if you're a Trump supporter, I implore you to continue listening. Because although I don't support Trump for president, I'm not against him or against you. I'm not on any side that is not also ultimately on your side too. What I mean is, just because I'm taking a position doesn't mean I'm taking a side. And I think this is a critical distinction for our world right now. And in this episode, I'll explore how it is possible to take a position without taking sides. And if we're going to bridge our differences without violence, which only intends to eradicate threats, not bridge differences, well, then we need to learn how to take different positions on things without taking opposite sides. I'm excited for this episode, and it's a vulnerable one for me, as I'm taking you to the edge of my own practice and understanding around what's happening in the world today, and how I'm consciously choosing to show up in it. And I'll also share with you what my confrontation with the seeming darkness that is now encroaching upon humanity looks like. So take a deep breath and stay present with me all the way through to the end of this episode of Men This Way. And if you want to share feedback or share what this conversation or this exploration inspires in you, please email me directly at brian at brianreeves.com. It's brian with a Y at brianreeves.com. I'd really love to hear your thoughts. All right, let's dive. I've been reading an incredible book by author and what I'll call soul work focused therapist Bill Plotkin. It's called Nature and the Human Soul. And this book is lighting me up at the moment. Bill masterfully outlines the developmental stages of a human being throughout his or her lifetime, or really rather the potential 
developmental stages. Because as many men and women, arguably the vast majority of humanity really, we've, we've gotten stuck in a perpetual adolescence in which we remain oriented almost exclusively towards seeking personal comfort and self-aggrandizement, self-inflation. In other words, we modern humans are failing to become true adults. We're failing to develop into the next stage of our developmental process because we've overwhelmingly failed at discovering and viscerally understanding our connection to the greater whole, to nature, to the earth, to animals and the cosmos in general, and ultimately, therefore, our connection to each other no matter how different we may look on the surface. And in Bill's book, he describes the transition of late adolescence, which ultimately yields us finally the stage of early adulthood as a time in which we must descend into a, a sort of darkness. He calls this stage the wanderer in the cocoon. And he shares a beautiful Rainer Maria Rilke poem. I'm a huge fan of Rilke. And he shares this poem as he talks about this particular stage of development. And I'll share that with you now. It's called Onto a Vast Plain. You are not surprised at the force of the storm. You have seen it growing. The trees flee. Their flight sets the boulevards streaming. And you know... He whom they flee is the one you move toward. All your senses sing him as you stand at the window. The weeks stood still in summer. The tree's blood rose. Now you feel it wants to sink back into the source of everything. You thought you could trust that power when you plucked the fruit. Now it becomes a riddle again and you again a stranger. Summer was like your house. You know where each thing stood. Now you must go out into your heart as onto a vast plain. Now the immense loneliness begins. The days go numb. The wind sucks the world from your senses like withered leaves. Through the empty branches, the sky remains. It is what you have. Be earth now and evensong. Be the ground lying under that sky. Be modest now like a thing ripened until it is real, so that he who began it all can feel you when he reaches for you. Oh, I love me some Rilke. Now, in Bill's book, Nature and the Human Soul, he assures us, as this phase of late adolescence finally finds us, that it is though, quote, a trap door has suddenly opened in the floor of your life, and whether you desire it or not, you are headed for the depths, which is to say the greater significance of your own life. End quote. As this trapdoor drops us into a new realm of exploration, and we begin to wander and discover more about the greater mysteries of our own lives, our sphere of identity in this transition shifts from an ethnocentric identity, consider an adolescence, uh, when we're adolescents, adolescent beings, we're, we're very identified with our peer group and trying to find our place amongst the people we're surrounded by who appear and feel most similar to ourselves. And in this shift of late adolescence towards adulthood, now we're shifting uh, towards a more world-centric identity. 
as we suddenly feel this undeniable pull towards understanding our place in the world far beyond simply our human peer group. It's an exciting time, though a scary time too, this wandering stage. And you can see how you know, so much of the world where we're encouraged to tourism at best, but we're not really encouraged to wander in our adolescence. We're encouraged to particularly in the West, just hurry up and get a job. That was certainly the message I got at even 16 and 17 years old. Just in my case, it was go to college, get a job. There was no, um, there was no support and encouragement for wandering into the greater world. So uh, for personally, for me, I entered this stage uh, when I left the military at age 26. And again, nobody told me to go wander. In fact, there were more... Uh, men specifically in the defense industry who were actually trying to get me to just go work in that industry, to to leave my job as a captain in the Air Force and go straight into working for a defense contractor. But the idea of it, just the idea of it, felt like death to me. It wasn't even a choice to say no. It was just such a deep, clear no. I needed to wander. And I literally grabbed a backpack and my travel guitar and just went walkabout. And this was before the days of YouTube and Instagram and all social media and smartphones. Even email was barely a thing. People had pagers, more or less, but cell phones were still very much in their infancy. So I felt very much alone as I set off across the oceans and traveled into Europe with no destination or timeline in mind. And on that journey, I would venture deep into not just Europe, but India and Egypt and the Australian outback. And I would suffer greatly along the way. In fact, just 30 days into this wandering adventure, which I chose, not because I knew it was some developmental stage I had to pass through. I wish someone would have helped me understand this back then. But no, because I simply knew I hadn't found my true place in the world. And after suffering through 10 years of military service in which I knew that was not my place in the world, I was determined to find it. But finding your place in the world, as you, my dear listener, surely know by now, is not something you just find with the help of a guidance counselor or your mom or even your best friend. You have to be willing to wander, perhaps for an extended time unknown, into unfamiliar places. And this is no task for the faint of heart. In my case, just 30 days after I began my journey, I had a nervous breakdown one night in a phone booth in North Wales. I'll share the full story in greater detail another time. For now, I just want you to know that I had this nervous breakdown essentially because I didn't know who I was anymore. And I was terrified. And perhaps humanity is going through a similar crisis at the moment. Given the crisis looming before us, or the crises, the multiple crises looming before us from climate change to the pandemic to a new season of protests and divisive politics, the, like, the likes of which many of us have never seen in our lifetime, we are facing massive questions about who are we? One of the main themes of Bill's, Bill's book is the difference between egocentric society and Eco, E-C-O-centric society. 
A friend of mine shared a great picture on Instagram the other day. Uh, my friend Caduce, actually. He's a former MTV host of Total Request Live, and he's actually a guest on an earlier episode of this podcast. And Caduce shared a picture showing the difference between ego world, an ego world, and an eco world. And Caduce had no idea of Bill's book, so I was really surprised because I reached out and asked him, and I was surprised he had never heard of it. Um, so obviously, you know, this we're tapping into a very deeply held theme, a, a, a theme that resonates deep in the core of our humanity, this difference between egocentric living and eco-centric living. And in Caduce's photo, which I, probably wasn't his original, I don't know exactly where it came from, but in his uh, the egocentric photo, the egocentric world looked like uh, it showed life as a pyramid with man on top, and everything else was below him, from trees and flowers and mushrooms to alligators, snakes and koala bears, and even the human woman. Now, the ecocentric world is represented as a circle, not a pyramid, a circle, in which all these same things are simply part of the circle. Man is not outside or on top of anything, but he is simply one part that makes up the entire circle. And this realization is a task that we humans have still largely failed to achieve. And in fact, by collectively failing at this crucial task of awakening to our deep connection to anything outside our own little self-contained egos, we persist in living as an egocentric society, which basically means good luck trying to convince anyone of anything that doesn't serve their own ego. Listen to that again, I mean, because that's basically the story we're all experiencing. That's sort of the, the state of the world right now. An egocentric society basically means good luck trying to convince anyone of anything that doesn't serve their own ego. The ego cares only about survival, comfort, status. Disconnected from the greater whole of life, it seeks only self-preservation. And what better way to survive than to make itself even bigger? Thus, we have the current, the current state of most humanity. And it would seem, whether we are ready or not, that the trap door is opening up beneath us, and humanity is entering into a period of darkness. In all the great mythological stories throughout history, we hear of tales of the descent into darkness, whether that mean our hero is swallowed into the belly of some giant beast or they simply descend into the underworld where the demons and gods of death reside. From Inanna, the ancient Sumerian goddess, the queen of heaven, who descends into the underworld and along the way she must steadily give up all her royal, royal possessions before eventually being reduced to a despised and rotting corpse before eventually, through various twists and turns of fate, she finds her way back to heaven. To the biblical story of Jonah, who, after refusing to heed God's command for him, is swallowed up by a whale and must spend three days inside the dark cavern of the whale's belly praying for redemption. He's eventually spat out on a beach somewhere with renewed clarity of vision and purpose to doing God's work. Darkness and death are motifs we revisit over and over throughout all humanity's greatest teaching stories. The what is darkness, but the representation of what is simply unknown to us. We fear darkness, the unknown, because we fear death. 
We fear death because in our ego-centric state of mind, we do not yet, we cannot yet feel truly connected to life. Death is a part of life, which is a cliche we may utter at a funeral or when a pet dies, but it's not an experience that we modern people have any practices for meeting, for fully digesting and reconciling within our beings or even any desire to meet and reconcile with face to face. You know, it's a little side note, but I think this is one of the reasons that even dark-skinned people tend to be so feared that light-skinned people tend to want to oppress them. I mean, why, do, try, why try to oppress what you don't fear? This fear of darkness gets projected outward in countless ways, and one of those ways is the fear of dark-skinned people, too. I know it's a bit simplistic to say that and leave it there, but consider you hear this cultural preference for the light and the white over the dark and the black everywhere. From how we describe the angels of religion as always white with white wings, to the white lists and black lists that we use to discern between who is welcome to attend whatever event we're throwing. You know, if you're on the white list, basically that means we don't think you'll kill the vibe. You won't bring death to the vibe we want to experience, so you're welcome to attend. But if you're on the blacklist, you can't attend because we fear you'll bring death to whatever experience we're trying to give ourselves. <laughs> it's, it's really amazing to think about. Consider even the curious irony of the term black hole. A black hole is a cosmic phenomenon among the most feared and revered, revered and feared in the known universe. The one place that you can never go and expect to return from. And yet, any, any physicist will tell you it's also the brightest thing in the universe. As so much light forms around it that it's one of the easiest things to see in the distant dark sky. Even consider the word black market. The place that you shop for dangerous things. Things that would threaten the stability of daytime society. And on and on and on and on. This darkness aversion slash fascination is everywhere but in our death avoidant culture we resist the descent into darkness into psychologically unknown territory we prefer youth and summer over old age and winter what it essentially boils down to is our resistance to feeling uncomfortable feelings and you know the best way to do that to avoid uncomfortable feelings stay busy focus on being productive, getting shit done, and definitely keep the economy always functioning regardless of the cost to our actual humanity. For so long as we're focused on achieving our egocentric goals, you can push to the side all the uncomfortable feelings that surely come with facing uncertainty, darkness, or death. And yet we cannot resist darkness for long all the same. Even all our movies involve the representation of some descent into darkness, some drama obstacle which the protagonist of the story must discover how to move through, how to overcome, and thus triumphantly return from, so they may become a greater version of themselves. Most every movie or TV series essentially involves someone confronting some external threat that, should they figure out how to meet and overcome, will usher them into a greater connection to themselves, a greater version of themselves. Every character has to be plunged into a darkness they know not yet how to escape, until some twist of fate delivers them the insight or the courage or the special weapon with which they can now vanquish their enemies and reemerge valiantly back into the light 
in which the community around them can now suddenly see them in a beautiful new light too. Now, movies and TV series are so compelling because they represent our own unique human story. In order for us each to grow and develop through our lives, it is inevitable we must face some challenge that resists our growth. However, we don't understand this challenge is always internal, even though there may be external forces forcing this confrontation with our internal selves with the darkness within. The darkness we must face is always internal, if we are to discover greater and greater aspects of ourselves. But this isn't what we're taught to do by our egocentric world. We're taught to seek always comfort and security for the ego, whatever it takes. Thus, we endlessly seek some pill or a million dollars or celebrity or sex or just job security, thinking it will finally soothe the ego daily afraid of death. Yet it never does, not for long. There's always some new threat, something else to worry about that might cause me to lose what I think I have or prevent me from getting what I think I need. Thus, we constantly project outwards, always seeking and finding enemies outside us working against our internal well-being. If you're a Republican, the enemy is Democrats. If you're a Democrat, the enemy is Republicans. If you're a dog, the enemy is cats. If you're a cat, the enemy is dogs, and so on and so on and so on. I have a friend, a close friend, that I've been talking to for a few months about the upcoming election, uh, the presidential election. When we say the election, we all know what we're talking about, don't we, in 2020. He's been leaning in the direction of supporting Donald Trump, which has admittedly been really hard for me. I think it's even caused me slight panic at times. This guy is a really good friend whom I trust who is even a growing leader in the world of uh, transformational men's work. And we've been sharing our different perspectives over the past few months with each other. And at times, it's gotten pretty uncomfortable for both of us. We've found ourselves resisting each other's messages a lot. I even once lazily imagined us future enemies in some imagined apocalyptic world where the current divisions have grown so large that the world is at war and he and I are on different sides. It's crazy, but these are the kinds of thoughts that don't seem so far-fetched in this time of looming darkness. But in any case, we've been doing this same projecting thing on each other, each of us at different times afraid of some painful darkness we would have to experience that we're certain would be only clearly, definitely caused by the ignorant and faulty ways of the other person's side. It's been challenging for he and I to stay partnered in our conversation. Though we're constantly reminding each other that we love each other and that even if he decides to fully support Trump, and I've already firmly uh, stated my belief that Trump is an awful leader, doing everything opposite of what a true leader does, we've both affirmed that our friendship will nonetheless always come first. And man, it's been a tough slog at times but it's been reassuring to know that we're both mutually committed to the relationship over ideology, over political perspective. And how far can our human commitment to that truly go in these increasingly polarized times? Well, I confess I don't know. And this is in part what my impending darkness looks like. The possibility that I may lose friendships, 
and that people I love may be hurt if Trump is given more time in office. From my black brothers and sisters who are further deeply wounded by a leader who demonstrates in countless ways he doesn't understand their struggle. To the earth environment, the water, the land, and the air, whose protections this administration continues to erode. Even to my own mother, who refuses to say this man's name for she's been so deeply wounded by the fact that our country chose to put this man in office over a woman, mind you who has behaved so poorly in all manner of ways, and who himself publicly admitted before he was elected in 2016 that his demeanor fundamentally hasn't changed since he was six years old and in the first grade. I am nervous about the growing darkness I see encroaching upon us, the growing uncertainty. Even right now, I'm in California where it hasn't been wise to go outside for the last week due to massive wildfires creating the worst air quality in the world. And that's after almost six months of already being quarantined due to the pandemic. At least then we can walk our dog without risking our respiratory health. On top of all that, we are clearly experiencing a global lurch towards tyranny and narcissistic leadership. With so many countries and national leaders, including my own, using divisive rhetoric and fear-mongering with one goal in mind, to seize, retain, and consolidate power such that they can remake the world in their own fashion. Too many leaders are doing with greater and greater explicit approval from the people, the very people, the citizenry, citizenry that we are, too many leaders are succeeding with their approval at what Hitler did so successfully in the late 30s. Consolidate power. Demonize disloyal media. Blame anyone who doesn't look like or think like you for the people's problems. And actually then take action to attack those people in whatever ways you can get away with and be ruthless about it all. Even now there are coordinated efforts to undermine this November election in the United States, even by the very people who were specifically elected to ensure our democracy functions, which means that our elections function. And even if you don't agree with my characterizations, whichever side of these growing political divides you fall upon, this is all profoundly unnerving. It may seem there is no such thing as not taking a side these days. I've certainly struggled with this question of whether and how to take sides. Typically, I desire not to take sides, particularly when the conflicts are complex, such as what we're experiencing these days. I always prefer to rise above the conflict and offer a higher perspective, a more enlightened view of everything, which I realize I do in the service of actually bringing people together, or at least trying to. Even in the speaking of this, as much as I loathe Trump in the role of leader, it pains me to think that people who support Trump will almost surely have tuned out earlier in this episode, quickly deciding I must not be on their side. Now, I grew up a child of divorce. My family split apart forever when I was four years old. The pain of seeing people deeply disconnected from each other hurts me to my core. And it's a core reason why I do the relationship coaching work I do to help bring embattled loved ones back together. Seeing these grave disconnects happening in my own country, which I surely love, hurts me to my core. 
particularly as people more and more seem to be trending towards using violence to resolve their differences. And as I've been sitting with this question of how to show up in these divided times, with this growing darkness descending even upon my own normally optimistic self, I've thought a lot about a quote from an old Matthew Broderick movie, Biloxi Blues, which came out in 1988, about a bunch of men going through military training camp together. In that movie, there's this moment where this awkward and geeky character, Arnold Epstein, who, who keeps getting picked on by everyone else around him. Just one day, he turns to Matthew's character, and Matthew's character is an aspiring writer who's always just kind of standing on the sidelines, seemingly to avoid getting involved in any conflict. He just wants to write about it. He doesn't want to get involved in it. And Arnold says to him, you're a witness. You're always standing around watching what's happening, scribbling in your book what other people do. You have to get in the middle of it. You have to take sides, make a contribution to the fight, any fight, the one you believe in. That quote, when I heard it, really pierced me because I've always been an observer myself, wanting to bridge divides with perspective and understanding and not take sides. It pains me to see my family apart, whoever my family may be in the moment. But here's the thing. I still don't believe in taking sides, except when it comes to sports, but only because it's fun to take sides in sports and no one really gets hurt unless you take your side too seriously. But otherwise, I don't believe in taking sides when it comes to humans figuring out how to live together, whether in a home, in a city, or on a continent, or a planet. But I absolutely do believe in taking positions. I've learned, both from life in general and from relationship coaching specifically, that it never serves to take sides between two adults in conflict. Not if I'm genuinely interested in helping move the relational dynamic forward beyond an antagonistic stance. Usually taking sides just does the opposite. It creates further distance between two parties. However, when I'm coaching couples, I've learned that sometimes it is necessary to take a strong position, at least temporarily, to serve the relational dynamic moving forward to help shift it in some meaningful way. For example, let's take an easy example. Say I'm working with a couple who's been together for a number of years and one partner is aching to get married while the other continues to resist marriage, which usually sounds something like, why mess up a good thing? I'm committed to you and no piece of paper is going to prove anything different. In these cases, I'll often take a strong position. The position that uh, and I'll say this to the couple, I'll let them know, I'll tell them that I believe their relationship will only get worse so long as the resisting partner continues to protest and dismiss the other partner's desire to marry. Now, the other partner could, could that, that partner that I'm, uh, who is resisting might look at me and say, well, I'm taking the other person's side. And they'll say, well, why doesn't, it's usually, honestly, it's usually, it's usually the, well, in a heterosexual relationship, it's usually a woman who wants to get married while a man resists. Not always, but often. And um, he might suggest that, well, why doesn't she change her mind? And uh, again, I'm taking a position, willing to be wrong, but taking the position, she's not going to change her mind. In fact, that this is only going to get worse because it's not about what's happening in her mind, but rather what's happening in her heart. Anyway, it's a position. And the the key here is that I'm not against one partner and for the other. I am for the relationship. 
And even more than that, I am for each partner's authentic relationship to themselves. If the resistant partner genuinely, deeply, just either does not want to be married, even if it means they lose the one they love, then I say it's better. They know sooner rather than later that they are fundamentally incompatible. And me taking that position will often bring them to the brink of that, of whether or not that is really true. But more often than not, though, my taking that position becomes a powerful catalyst for the resistant partner to finally be willing to face something inside themselves they have long not wanted to face. You know, for example, it's far easier to just say, I don't believe in marriage. I don't need a piece of paper to show I'm committed to you. It's far easier to say that than to actually face a long repressed sadness that arose from watching their parents divorce when they were four. Or to, say, finally work with the anger that they've been harboring towards dad or mom for not being a better parent or a better spouse to each other. You know, for seeing their parents fight. Or whatever the unexplored inner darkness is that's holding them back from fully offering the depths of their devotion to the one person that they say they're choosing and committed to. Far easier instead to just say, nah, marriage is the enemy. Better we don't enter that domain of darkness and certain death. And this is an important and useful distinction between taking a side and taking a position. In taking a side, I choose ideology uh, over relationship. But in taking a position, I affirm the relationship as a priority, even though we may disagree over ideology. And I'll say that again. In taking a side, I choose ideology over relationship. In taking a position, I affirm the relationship as priority, even though we may disagree over ideology. Whether the ideology be political ideas, religious beliefs, beliefs about marriage, or beliefs about skin color or sexual orientation, in prioritizing the ideology over relationship, I open myself up to either allowing you to experience great harm or expecting you even to experience harm to yourself, say in the example of the one partner resisting marriage and the other, the one in resistance just kind of expects the other partner, just go along with what I want, even if you don't like it, even if it hurts you, right? So I open myself up to allowing you to experience great harm. Um, or even directly causing you great harm for the sake of protecting my ideology. But by prioritizing relationship over ideology, we now enter a domain in which we can find a way to live with or alongside each other despite our differences. And we humans will always experience differences between us. You know, coming back to that difficult conversation with my close friend who's been leaning towards coming out in support of Donald Trump. Look, I have every ideological, logical, even empirical reason to be against Donald Trump. I was trained in leadership through my 10 years service in the United States Air Force. Trump clearly does everything the opposite of what a truly courageous service leader does. Leaders take responsibility for everything that goes wrong on their watch, no matter how directly involved they were or weren't, because a leader knows they are ultimately the ones responsible for the state and function of whatever organization or organism they're leading. And when things go right, 
Courageous leaders share both reward and praise with all the people who worked to help things go right. And yet Trump does the exact opposite. He takes responsibility for nothing that goes wrong and absolutely everything that goes right. And completely independent of whether or not he had anything to actually do with either case. And that's just one example. And so I'm taking a position. My position is that continuing to give this president power will result in a further descent into division and chaos that doesn't serve us, certainly not in the short term. Now, you might say I've taken sides, and if you support Trump, you'll almost certainly hear it that way. But I don't identify with that. I'm not against conservatives or progressives. I'm not against Republicans, and I'm not against Democrats. I'm not even against Trump. I am simply taking the position that he does not offer wise democracy-compatible leadership and therefore should not be re-elected to office. It's not a side, but a position. In fact, right now, I would say even I'm for Trump returning to what he does best, which I figure is simply be a relentless promoter of his brand. But that's not the role of a president in a democratic country. Now, some may say this is a cop-out, and I wonder what Arnold Epstein in Biloxi Blues would say to me here. Though I don't think he made the same distinction between taking a position and taking sides. But nonetheless, there are so many false choices we're being told we must make. For example, Black Lives Matter or All Lives Matter. It's a false choice. I absolutely believe in and affirm Black Lives Matter because I absolutely believe in and affirm that all lives matter. It's a false choice to suggest one side's slogan is somehow more enlightened or appropriate than the others. And I can lead with Black Lives Matter because uh, the urgency of Black Lives Matter is a subset of the urgency of, of, of all lives matter. So, But they don't live independent of one another. Yet it's amazing how many people, adults, even our highest leadership, can't bring themselves to affirm both because they're totally stuck on their side, which insists you got to choose one or the other. They're stuck in egocentrism. If it doesn't serve their ego, the inflation of their side or their ideology, they can't go there. Their relationship, even to their own fellow citizens, be damned. I remember not long ago seeing a picture of two very happy, proud men at a Trump rally wearing t-shirts. They were showing off these t-shirts that said something like, I'd rather be Russian than Democrat. It just underscored to me how people in egocentric society will stubbornly just keep moving the goalposts of their ideologies before they give themselves to the far more difficult but meaningful work of healing damaged relationships, even with those they must live alongside. The truth is there is wisdom on all sides, and there is immaturity and fear-mongering on all sides. And all sides want you to believe that if you give the other power, like on some level, all sides in their worst most fear, fear-filled state will try to convince you that if you give the other side power, it will soon be the end of you and everything you hold dear. That is the nature of the shadow. The shadow tells you, um, put your trust in me, I will protect you. But all it does is keep you living in fear. And this is the core lie of egocentric culture 
that my ego knows better than yours does, or my leader's ego knows better than your leader's ego. And there's no end to the war to war in this mindset. Yeah, I've also recently been drawing inspiration from movies that feature epic battles between clearly distinguished forces of good and evil. Movies like Star Wars and Lord of the Rings. The evil side is always ruled by a single ego who uses whatever brutal means necessary to attain ever more power, all for the sake of its own perpetual inflation. Whereas the good side is always ruled by a council of wise elders, a group of people, yeah, with egos, but who are clearly more concerned about how the entire community is affected by their decisions and whom welcome, or at least expect and respect, disagreement among the various members of the council. For in this way of decision-making, they trust that the best decisions that genuinely support the well-being of the entire community will inevitably emerge. This is eco-centric leadership, not ruled by one self-concerned ego, but governed by a collection of eco-centric people concerned for the whole of life. The evil ego leader cares not at all how the community is affected, and in fact blames and punishes its own people for anything that goes not according to his own self-determined plan. In The Lord of the Rings, for example, on the good side you have the Fellowship of the Ring, a group of wise warrior servants charged with the task of safely destroying the evil ring. Which, by the way, we're constantly warned, gives egocentric power to whoever wears it. And on the evil side, you have one massive evil eye in the sky, Sauron, the greatest ego evil ever known, for it only seeks complete and total control over Middle-earth and all the beings in it. And that's all it wants, control of everything. Even in Star Wars, on the rebel side, the good side, you have both the Rebel Council and the Jedi Council both of which are made up of all variety of human and alien races, races and also male and female characters. Decisions are generally intended to be made with input from everyone in both councils, and although both make mistakes, despite being made up of beings aware of their deeper connection to all life, they are nonetheless fallible creatures after all. Still, on the dark side, you only always have one being ruling over everyone, and in Star Wars, we first meet Emperor Palpatine, who is Darth Vader's even more ruthless boss, and just an all-around jerk, an unlovable dude with massive powers who will fuck you up if you cross him. Perhaps the whole idea of giving one man so much power is more and more an outdated idea. The United States was actually conceived to have really a council of three, the president being just one member of that three, the other members being Congress, which actually comprises hundreds of people, and the Supreme Court, which is currently a council of nine. You can see how, though, in our current iteration, as the most powerful elements of Congress have been aligning with the president, no matter how egregious his leadership failures, and even the Supreme Court is at ongoing risk of being stacked in alignment with the president, that the original conception of our founding fathers, that we be governed by a council of at least three, is being eroded before our very eyes. And on top of that, the free press long considered the fourth branch of government, and that it offers a fourth perspective on how, uh, on how and whether the government is serving the people. 
Um, as our elected leaders have been successfully waging war on the free press by redefining it or undermining it as fake press when it holds them accountable in ways they don't want to be held accountable, well, the system we've been functioning by for so long is breaking down. And for most blacks, blacks, Jesus, I'm not sure what that just sounded like, but for most black people, that's not necessarily a bad thing. As most of the black men and women I've been friends with and learning from, particularly over this last year, have assured me this system largely hasn't really worked for them anyway. And for most whites, let's say white people, including someone like me, the breakdown of this system is frightening. And well, truthfully, it's still, I think it's frightening for everybody. You know, the stability of even what's been um, uncomfortable, well, it's kind of like the devil you know. You know what I mean? Yeah, it's frightening for everybody. I think just the people who haven't been served by the system are far more ready to see it come down and face the uncertainty. They've been living in the darkness for a long time as it is. So, what does this all mean? Since the pandemic hit us strong in March and we went into quarantine in April and the protests erupted and now these fires and hurricanes are lashing at our land, my brain has been desperately trying to figure out what the hell is going on. But that's the nature of darkness. I can't know. There's no way around it. I can attempt to run from it, to turn around and go back to what feels safe. That's what the slogan, Make America Great Again, is all about. Going backwards to some idyllic fantasy past that doesn't even exist. And even if it did exist, there's still no going back in life. There is only going forward into the unknown, for that's the ultimate truth of life, and the next moment that it is inherently unknowable. When I was sitting at the bottom of that phone booth in North Wales back in 2001, just 30 days after I'd left the military, and finally crying out a long-suppressed despair. Part of what was so profoundly upsetting was that I knew I couldn't go back. There was nowhere to go back to. There was no there, there. Going back would have meant regressing to an earlier identity that I just no longer identified with. Yet still, I had no idea where to go from here. And thus was my breakdown. In the days that followed that moment, I decided to stay at a travel traveler's hostel for a few days. It had these big bay windows that overlooked a vast open field with undulating hills that disappeared into the distance. It was February in the year of 2001, just a few months before the world would massively change forever in September of 2001. And in that February in North Wales, a low gray mist hung over those fields, dusted with a silver frost. It was perhaps the first moment in my life where I actively practiced surrender. Surrender to not knowing what to do. I simply stayed put and allowed myself to feel sad, to grieve. It was one of the most beautiful three-day experiences of my life, just resting in that hostel gazing out over frost-covered hills, writing in my journal and my notebook in the middle of a winter, a darkness that I could not in that moment escape from. After a few days, an inspiration found me, and I knew it was time to go. My journey onward 
and the beginning of my journey outward from the depths of that particular darkness continued. But I would continue wandering for a few more years to come. I had a lot of awakening yet to do, and at times the journey would again be excruciating, the darkness again overwhelming. I am an optimistic person. One of my coaching clients once called me his silver lining guru, and I do see a silver lining to all this as well. I knew when Trump was elected that we were about to witness very publicly what the human shadow does when we give it power over our lives. I knew it could be incredibly instructive to see that our shadow, despite its firm insistence that it wants to protect us from harm and that that is why it sees threats everywhere, ultimately it only serves to continue its own existence, which ultimately just makes an utter mess of our lives, throws every relationship that we care about uh, in the trash heap if it threatens our survival. And that indeed is what we are seeing on a national and global scale. I still think we'll take greatly empowering lessons from this in the long run, just as we did collectively after Hitler's brutal rule in Germany, after World War I and World War II. We created the League of Nations, for example, after World War I, and the United Nations after World War II. Again, two council bodies designed to bring out the collective wisdom of humanity and avoid the temptations to tyranny that come with one ego leadership. So I'm optimistic in the long run that we will learn from all this. But in the short term, I do feel fear. Humanity learns at a snail's pace. And it seems we too often have to repeat the grave mistakes of the past because we clearly didn't integrate into our collective consciousness the lessons those mistakes could have taught us. So I do fear we are in for yet more frightening dark times still ahead. But no matter how bad things get, I myself am committed to doing my best not to buy into the divisive rhetoric that I must take aside. Now, I have not always succeeded at that. But nonetheless, that is my commitment. I will surely take many positions, some of which I will speak loudly and publicly. But in the end, I choose to stand on the side of humanity and on the side of the whole of life. For what good is humanity if our waters and our air are poisoned? If our oceans are dead and our forests are burnt to an ash that then chokes our lungs? <coughs> <coughs> Speaking of which, oh, these California fires. What good is humanity if our animal brothers and sisters have nowhere to be wild? And the life-death-life lessons of nature are lost to us because we're too busy exploiting nature simply to make our egos more comfortable for an always fleeting moment. So I ask you to sit with this question. What would it look like for you to take positions, ones you believe in, but without taking sides? What would it look like for you to take positions, ones you believe in, yet without taking sides? And I'll leave you with that. So thank you for listening. Look, I want to share with you what's coming next. I'm going to be doing episodes more infrequently for the rest of this year. I have a new book coming out in the next few months titled Choose Her Every Day or Leave Her, 
a guide to your journey through the transformational fires of love and intimacy. That's actually coming out really, really soon. If you're not on my email list, please sign up today at brianreeves.com so I can let you know when it's available. Join my email list at brianreeves.com. It's brian with a Y, reeves.com. So I can let you know when this, uh, my new book, which I'm super excited about, comes out. Uh, As I take a bit of time off from this podcast for the rest of this year to both tend to the arrival of my new book and to simply rest um, and to also service my coaching practice, if you're interested in exploring coaching with me, please email me at support at brianreeves.com. I currently work with both men and women who want help breaking through persistent challenges around purpose and mindset and who want support in creating a thriving intimate relationship. I also work with couples as well who want to experience deeper intimacy and connection. But here's the thing, my coaching practice stays fairly full and I only work with people and couples who are genuinely committed to their own transformation. Uh, I do have openings, openings occasionally, so if you are interested really interested, please email me at support at brianreeves.com and share what kind of support you're looking for and my assistant will help you out from there. In my next iteration of this podcast, which I expect to begin in early 2021, uh, I intend to explore more of a framework for what it means to thrive as a man. And this framework I call the five pillars of a thriving man. The five pillars of a thriving man. Now, I've been talking about this for a few years, and I've really yet to to, to fully dive into it. But um, I think this is such a, a, a valuable exploration, and I keep hearing from more and more men who are aching to connect more deeply with themselves, and who recognize that they're hungry for relationships, for this for this exploration into themselves, and also f- for relationships with other awakening men. And to support that growing need, I intend in the near future to offer more men's retreats and online experiences for men. I love doing relationship work, working with couples. I'll probably never stop that, but more and more I'm getting that men are waking up to the need to do their own personal growth work, and I want to help that along. So please reach out to me if you have any questions or desires around that. And I know there's a lot of information constantly coming at you, but I encourage you, if you haven't listened to earlier episodes of this podcast, go back and listen to episodes that you haven't heard. It's so important that we men learn from each other and alongside each other. And for women as well, I know there are a lot of women listeners to this podcast that find it fascinating to get insights into the mind of man and to also get a taste, to really feel what it's like to be in conversation with men who care, with men who are connected to heart, with men who have a vision beyond their own egocentric fulfillment, but men who are genuinely stepping into ecocentric ways of living and showing up in the world. And, and in these past episodes, there's so much profound and timeless wisdom and insight and tools and practices throughout these. I started this podcast, I think, 2018. So um, there's, there's plenty to dive into. And uh, you'll continue to see episodes pop up uh, from time to time over the coming weeks and months before I renew a more consistent commitment to publishing uh, episodes in early 2021. So please do stay stay subscribed. And um, just in case if you're wondering, I just mentioned the five pillars of a thriving man, but I didn't tell you what those were. And I'll just give you a little sneak preview. 
The five pillars of a thriving man are purpose, intimacy, family, brotherhood, and spirit. So I thank you always so much for listening. And you can find this episode, including any links, resources, books, show notes, etc., and additional episodes featuring the inspiring insights and conversations with extraordinary and wise guests at brianreeves.com slash podcast. And also remember, as a Men This Way listener, you get 10% off of all my uh, courses on my website, all my programs, including the Boundaries program, Relationships Suck Without Boundaries, including Love, Sex, Relationship Magic, uh, even the Conflict to Connection 90-Day Couples Coaching Program. Just enter coupon code MENTHISWAY10 on any checkout page. It's MENTHISWAY10 on any checkout page for 10% off at brianreeves.com. Finally, if you were served by this and think others should hear it too, please share this episode or just write a review on your podcast app so that you too can lead more men this way. And don't forget to subscribe yourself while you're at it. I am your thriving life and relationship coach, Brian Reeves. Brian with a Y, Reeves. Until soon, keep your head up, your breath relaxed, and your thoughts inspired. Inspired.